Hey friends, if you wish you weren't hearing an ad right now, then straight after you listen to this episode, head over to curiositystream.com slash not overthinking. For less than $15 a year, you get access to thousands of high quality documentaries on CuriosityStream, and you'll also get a special link to our podcast feed with all of the ads taken out. My name is Ali, I'm a doctor and YouTuber. I'm Taymor, I'm a data scientist and writer. And you're listening to Not Overthinking, the weekly podcast where we think about happiness, creativity, and the human condition. Hello everyone, and welcome back to Not Overthinking. Um, If you didn't notice, that intro maybe sounded slightly differently than it did previously because we're using Zencaster to record remotely now. And that's fun because it means we can play the intro and then we can start talking. Anyway, Taymor, how are you feeling today? I'm doing all right. I don't want to be uh, inauthentic with the audience. So we've actually we recorded about two minutes of the start of this episode already, and then we had technical issues. So now we're recording it again. So what I said, <laughs> what I originally said <laughs> was that it feels really professional to have the intro played. A bit, we, like we heard the intro in our headphones before Ali started talking. And it felt a bit like in a movie where you're like the news broadcaster and like the guy is like holding their fingers up and like counting you in of like three, two, one. And then you like start talking on the queue. It felt a bit like that. And that was cool. I've already said that once though. So sorry, sorry, sorry to repeat that. (laughs) It's not very authentic, is it? It's not quite your brand. (laughs) Right. Um, Uh, Also, what is your, uh, what are your audio levels saying? Because it sounds like your microphone is sort of peaking, but I'm not sure if that's a problem on your end or if it's just the, the fact that we're transmitting over the interwebs. I mean, what does it look like when it's peaking on Zencaster? I mean, I can just move a bit further away. That's fine. Yeah, put your, put your volume down. Yeah, because mine is significantly lower than yours. Uh, oh, how, like how on do my I Zoom. Sound in? Yeah, it looks like you're like really like recording really really okay, hot. Is this better? Uh, yeah, I think that's a little bit better. Okay. Anyway, I've, I've, cool. Um, anyway, you were saying how how are you doing today? <laughs> <laughs> so as I had started to say in the original recording about three minutes ago, I'm going through a bit of an existential period. I think I've been thinking about a lot of things, um, but in a good way. I think very very much in a good way. Uh, I feel sort of yeah, it's it's I it's a weird feeling. I feel like I'm in a sort of sort of strange kind of state, um, but I feel like I have greater clarity on things, and it, it feels like I'm about to make some progress. You know, I, I think like the past the past couple of weeks and the next couple of weeks, I feel like progress is being made. <laughs> progress is being made. Fantastic. Um, before we dive into how much progress you're making on the existential front, we have a cheeky little message. Would you like to tell us that message? I actually don't know what the message is. The message is that this episode is brought to you by Brilliant, who are very kindly sponsoring this episode. Tamer, what is Brilliant? Brilliant is the best way to teach yourself anything mathematical online. Uh, it's like uh, it's like Geolingo for maths. I think I, th- I saw someone tweet earlier this week. Oh man, I wish there was like a Geolingo for maths, and uh, I obviously replied with a link to Brilliant. Um, yeah, Brilliant or, or not, forward slash not overthinking specifically. Um, yeah. And it's not just maths; it's actually math, science, and computer science. And on Brilliant, they've got amazing online courses in. Basically, all of the interesting things in math, science, and computer science uh, at a level which is very approachable, but that also takes you quite advanced. But like in a nice way where they're like giving you exercises and interactivity throughout rather than it just being didactic teaching like we get in school. Yeah, it is really genuinely good stuff. Uh, We were sort of, we did something called Kumon back in the day, um, which is a very different approach. Um, yeah, brilliant. It kind of teaches you actual understanding and intuition and stuff like that rather than rote memorization and just like crunching numbers. Uh, yeah, brilliant.org forward slash not overthinking. Great. Anyway, existential. <laughs> um, 
I feel like my my spiel about my existential moment is going to lead into the main topic of the episode. So why don't you tell us a bit about your life? So how, how was oh, your... Oh, we have um, a topic. Oh, I thought the main topic was going to be your existentialism. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So like, let, let's do a bit of chit chat about your life before we get onto that. How, how is your part-time YouTuber Academy going? Oh, mate, it's, it's going so good. We've just finished week two uh, as of Friday, and we're going into week three out of, out of the four-week course. And it's actually really fun. Um, before doing it, I thought that doing a live course would be annoying rather than fun because you have to actually show up at a certain amount of time and talk to people and stuff. Yeah. But it is actually so much fun. It's, it's not quite the sort of, it's, it's, it's maybe 80% of the enjoyment of teaching in real life. Whereas recording a video is like 0% of the enjoyment of teaching in real life. Um, because, which is how I've previously done online courses, but I really like this model of the live, live cohort. And it's great. Like we have 380 people. Uh, the community is like ridiculously active. Um, people are doing the homework assignments and posting videos on YouTube for the first time. And sick. it's all like so supportive and nice and friendly. And we have these five peer supporters who are other beginner YouTubers, but who've got like a few, a few videos under their belt. And so each week they've been running five one hour long sessions, which turn into like one to three hour therapy sessions where beginners come in and are like, hey, I've been feeling really overwhelmed this week because I've realized that it's actually really hard uploading videos on YouTube. How do you get over it? And everyone's it's it, it, it turns into such a wholesome, nice sharing therapy, like little group thing. Oh, nice. Um, and then I do my kind of flagship sessions three times a week for two hours where sort of I prepare extensively for them. Angus and I put slides together and we kind of create a two hour interactive teaching session with breakout rooms and all that and stuff. And it just feels like really fun. I feel like I'm like performing um, <laughs> three times a week. And as a natural actor, uh, it feels <laughs> like I'm, I, I'm, I'm in my element. So yeah, overall, it's been really fun. Sick. So where, what, what, where does this sort of fun come from? Is it just like rewarding to sort of help people with this thing that they care about? Or um, Partly it's, on the, it's the results that people are getting. Because firstly, with, with like a normal online course, you just don't really see the results. Um, you just kind of film it in a few days and then you edit it in a few months and then it comes out and then you kind of forget about it yeah whereas here it's like every week actually every day like there are dozens of people publishing their videos on our, our circle community page and just like going through them and, and people being like oh my god this guy th th this was a real struggle but i i battled through and now here's my 60 second video and yeah that's quite nice but secondly i think also teaching on a live zoom call is surprisingly fun because you get the kind of real-time interaction and you get the people asking questions and whenever i it's always a bit weird. Like, well, when I I was I, I did an exercise with them on Friday where I said, "Okay, guys, um, guess how many videos the average sub uh, channel with a million subscribers has published." No. And people posted in the chat. They were like, "100 videos, 200, 300, 400." <laughs> and I was like, "I showed the number. It was 3,831." Oh, and everyone yeah. was like, "Oh my god!" <laughs> and you and, and you just see the "Oh my god" kind of emojis in the chat. And yeah, it, yeah, yeah. it's like it's not quite real time interaction where right. they gasp in front of you, but it's mm. the equivalent of a Zoom. Sick. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, that's that's quite fun <laughs> yeah that must be pretty cool so like for you know for any listeners who aren't in the part-time youtuber academy but who have instead of curious about the stuff like what have been like the biggest revelations for the students so far i guess one is like the, the amount of time and effort it actually takes to get to some decent traction on youtube yeah i think like the main thing is really consistency uh, but sort of our our group is mostly beginners so like 75 percent of the people on there have fewer than like 100 subscribers sure um no but like what, so, what what are people sort of fears about making their first video like why is the first sort of few videos difficult i mean we, we talked about this in episode two of the podcast about like putting oh, yourself out there yeah it, like, it is all the same stuff the okay. fear of perfectionism the fear of oh this isn't going to be good enough the fear of what are my friends and family going to think yeah though it's like those things that are, that are like the top ones 
And so I think the real one of the main values in a cohort group like this is that you have other people who are supporting you as you're doing along and everyone is kind of in the same boat of, all right, guys, we just need to hit the publish button. And then you realize, and then you do it and you realize, actually, this isn't so hard. Yeah. And you realize that all your friends in the group are doing it as well. And apparently people have set up their own like WhatsApp groups, like part-time YouTubers in London, part-time YouTubers in Australia. And they're all like encouraging each other without my active input, which in a way feels good because it's like they've created their own little community, but also in a way it makes me feel sad because (laughs) I've sort of positioned myself as like, (laughs) you know, the pinnacle and I don't want to encroach on these territories in case they feel shy about sharing beginner related things. Oh, I see. Damn. <laughs> yeah they're revolting against against the leader <laughs> exactly this is a real problem this is why i, I haven't been attending the peer support sessions because I, I don't want to don't feel welcome <laughs> i don't feel welcome exactly <laughs> i like to think i don't want to steal their thunder but mm. nice so is that the main thing in your life these days um that's the main thing in my life the other thing is that i started my uh, personal trainer sessions over zoom as well oh yeah which is actually like ridiculously effective i've got this guy called dan um who he and i used to train together for about a few weeks before lockdown in like March uh, in real life. And now he does like Zoom personal training sessions. So I just put my phone, prop my phone up on its tripod and for an hour, he just makes me do stuff. And an so he, he made me get a, yeah, it's like the, the the most intense workouts I've ever done in my life because like, you know, he's a, he's a real slave driver. <laughs> um, so he made me get a kettlebell and a set of like resistance bands. And mm. he's like, all right, now we're going to do the next superset. So firstly, we're going to do the thing that you hate. So that's kettlebell deadlifts and then no rest and then 10 squats immediately. Last time you did nine. Today, we're going to go for 10. You're not allowed to do any any less than 10. <laughs> and then only one minute of rest, one, uh, one minute and a half if you, if you have to, but like preferably one minute of rest. All right, come on, let's go, let's go, let's go. And just that is just so, so helpful in actually making me do stuff. Yeah. Um, so now I've, I've also been like tracking my macros and <laughs> trying to get protein and trying to be calorie effect deficit so I can get abs and, you know, all that, all that <laughs> kind of stuff. But just having someone on Zoom to tell me what to do has just been ridiculously high value. Do you like being told what to do by Daniel? I love being told what to do by Daniel. I even love it when Angus tells me what to do. Like recently <laughs> he started putting things on my calendar. Like when he wants me to do something for the channel, he puts it on my calendar and says, right, from 1 to 3 p.m. you are recording this video or you're <laughs> writing the script for that video. And it's just so nice. It's so great. <laughs> yeah it's nice when someone takes the reins <laughs> exactly i just love giving up control anyway speaking of giving up control <laughs> let's, let's talk about your life <laughs> yeah so we'll start off with a couple of um more more of the trivialities yesterday i watched a um really good film called the truman show i, I sort of you know it's one of these like classic films that everyone's probably heard about and a friend had kind of recommended it to me ages ago uh, and I finally got around to watching it and it was just so good. Like the experience of watching this film, it was, I, I describe it as sublime, you know, like a few times a year, I, I have an experience which I describe as sublime where like in the moment you're kind of like fully immersed, but you're also sort of aware of how special this moment is at the same time. And so like, yeah, it's, it's just like crazy. Like maybe once a year I'll see a film that good. I think the last film I saw, uh, which was Jojo on that level, Rabbit. sorry, Jojo Rabbit. Yeah. Yeah. Jojo Rabbit. Exactly. <laughs> Uh, I think Spider-Man uh, Far From Home <laughs> was last year's one, maybe. Um, yeah, it was just like top tier film. And it, and I think that definitely fed into like the sort of existential semi-crisis that I'm going through. I think it's got to be a better word than crisis. Let's just call it period, existential period. Um, yeah. Have you seen The Truman Show? You haven't, right? I haven't, but I, I've sort of heard enough about it to kind of vaguely know what it's about. Yeah. Mate, do absolute you, masterpiece. Do you think I should watch it? Yeah, dude, such a masterpiece for sure. It's like so good. It's like right. unbelievable. and good. I will watch it tonight. Nice. Yeah, it's on Netflix. Um, so that was one thing. The other thing is that uh, I don't know if you've noticed, but um, 
my lighting is different than before. I now have one of these, um, I, I think they're colloquially being called therapy lights, <laughs> one of these sort of bright lamps that uh, are sort of supposed to be for people with seasonal affective disorder to kind of just like give you more light. You, you know about these things, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I got one of these. I've that, used them many times. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I've had that this week. That's been quite cool. I, it's hard to say whether it's like made a difference. I feel like it has. I definitely feel like when I sit down at my desk and there's like a sort of bright light there, I definitely feel more alert, more awake, more like with it. Whereas without that, yeah, I think like going back to not having it would be weird. Um, but I think it's oh, cool. So, I think people should experiment with that. So if I if I zoom out, can you see that light that I've got? Oh above yeah, my yeah, yeah, desk? yeah. Yeah. So I often turn that on when I'm working in the middle of the day, even though I don't need it for videos. Yeah, it's nice, nice to have. Yeah, and it just actually makes me feel more alert and awake. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So mine basically does the same thing. Uh, you can get one of these for like. I think it was like £25 or something. You can get them cheaper, you can get them more expensive. Uh, definitely worth trying, I think. Yeah, that's actually one thing I've noticed with the house in general. Like there's not many lights. Um, partly this is because we don't have a light on on the ceiling of the living room. But it just, I, I don't know, I always feel like <laughs> the first thing that needs to be bought in any house is just loads and loads of lamps. Yeah. yeah. Just, to, just to increase the amount of light that there is. Yeah, can't go wrong with light. So is it like a cold light or like a warm light that sh- sh- shines has, in It has three different settings. So during oh. the day... I have it as white, and then in the evening, I turn it slightly yellow, and then at night, I turn it even more yellow, and then I turn it off. And does it shine like directly in your face, or is it like uh, sort of shining onto the wall and diffusing? I've basically got it pointed at me, just like soaking in the uh, the rays. Basking, basking in the sunlight. <laughs> yeah, basking in the sunlight. Another thing about related to basking in the sunlight is that I've started going on a daily walk um, to get my lunch, and I've uh, I usually call up uh, just like ring a friend during this daily walk and try and catch wow, up with a friend on the phone. If <laughs> <laughs> not once rang me on the phone. <laughs> what do you think this is? <laughs> oh yeah, good point. <laughs> yeah, so that's I think that's been nice. I've been surprised at how few people answer their phone or rather <laughs> pick up when I'm calling them. <laughs> I think a lot of people, yeah, a bunch, I think on, it rarely goes through on the first call. Usually I'll call once, no pick up and then I'll get a message saying, hey, did you call? <laughs> <laughs> yes obviously i called <laughs> um yeah so i've been doing that that's been kind of nice i think um what i think i've sort of noticed is that i've I've done that with friends who i've hung out with to to varying degrees i've done that with like you know some of the friends who i went on this holiday with for a month who i'm sort of really close to and have spent a lot of time with done that with friends who i haven't seen since like pre-lockdown one so like i haven't seen them in like eight months or something nine months um I think, I feel like the impromptu phone call, certainly for me, kind of works better with friends who you you're sort of, you sort of know quite well and like you interact with fairly often. Um, so like today, for example, I had one with a friend who I haven't seen since like February or something like that. Uh, it's now November, right? Um, and yeah, you know, we caught up. We A lot of information was exchanged. You know, we now know what's going on in each other's lives. But talking like, about something. Right, yeah. But you, you kind of want to get past the exchange of information. Um, and get to the sort of straight vibing, you know? Uh, so maybe maybe when I call him again... In, in, in another a, nine months. <laughs> in another nine months, yeah, we can get to He'll that. He'll be straight vibing instead. <laughs> yeah, so that's that's another thing that I've been doing. Uh, which so, I, I okay, nice. what, does, what does this look like mechanically? So you find a contact on your phone and you just think, you know what, I'm going to call them or, or is there more method to the madness? Uh, no, that's basically it. I go on WhatsApp, I just like do a big old scroll. Um, I'm... I'm the kind of person who 
uh, or maybe that's a bad phrasing. That's maybe problematic. I have I have lots of <laughs> again. I have lots of friends. <laughs> I'm not trying to not trying to signal anything. I have lots of unanswered WhatsApp messages, and so I think yeah. Here's the thing, right? Here's the thing. I think this is actually pretty good. If you if someone messaged you a while ago and you thought, oh, I'll reply to that later once I have once I can like properly reply, and now it's been like you know weeks, uh, months, nine months, yeah, <laughs> since, since, since you replied to them, they've had the baby, <laughs> <laughs> pregnant with the second one, <laughs> yeah, it yeah. feels a bit hard replying to the first one where they're like <laughs> send you a photo of their like six weeks scan, <laughs> right? Yeah, so like it it feels really bad to then reply after like ages. But if you call, it's like it's it's actually a much better way to catch up. You can like apologize for not replying to the message, and like you know you you clear you you sort of show that you clearly care about the relationship because you've you've like made the call. Whereas like if you reply to a, a text message by text like months later, like the moment's gone, right? Like <laughs> it's it doesn't really work. <laughs> you have to kind of re- reset. Um, so yeah, that's that's the process is just like scroll through WhatsApp, hit a name, hit call. And if they don't pick up, do you move on to to another person, or do you have like a quota of kind of sales calls that you have to make? Each day? <laughs> <laughs> I think it 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 depends on just like how I'm feeling. Um, I'll definitely so if try. The rejection hurts you <laughs> a lot. <laughs> yeah, like once I stop crying, then <laughs> I'll sort of reevaluate. Uh, yeah, it depends how I'm feeling. Like sometimes I'll try someone else. Um, I'm also listening to like yeah, I think audiobooks are just sick, man. I'm listening to some really good audiobooks at the moment. Um, so I'll just like carry on with them and that's what's okay, really wait, wait. great. And what? <laughs> you told me about audiobooks. <laughs> there we go. I told you about audiobooks. <laughs> Did you, you? You used to you used to rubbish me every time I mentioned audiobooks, you'd be like, Oh, I bet you're gonna say it's, you know, it's like a podcast, but they've put like a decade of research into it, therefore you should just listen to audiobooks instead. <laughs> this when, is what you said about three months ago. <laughs> when did I have any I never had anything against audiobooks, dude? You did. <laughs> did I actually? I, I, it was definitely in one of these bits, uh, sort of preambles when I was sharing trivialities about my life. And I said, oh my God, audiobooks are the best thing. And you were like, right, let me guess. So like <laughs> podcasts, but very well researched. <laughs> I don't think that was me poo-pooing it. I think that was just me like predicting what you were going to say and taking the piss out of you. <laughs> Fine. Have you been listening to fiction, fiction or nonfiction? I've been listening to nonfiction. Um, so I recently finished uh, an audiobook called Misquoting Muhammad by uh, a chap called Jonathan Brown. Really, really good stuff. Um, I've is now... that like a pro-Islam book or like an anti-Islam book? Because I've heard it used in like both contexts. It's, it's, I think it's fairly neutral. Oh, okay. Yeah. I, I don't think it's pro or anti. Um, I, think it's, it's, I, I think it's like pitched at the right level for, um, for me. It's, not, it's like not too simplistic and it's not like too academic. Like it is maybe a little bit academic. I mean, the guy is like an academic um so it's like a it's like a serious book and like yeah i guess i guess it's it's sort of like partly sort of philosophy of religion partly just like general sort of epistemology stuff um and then What's it's epistemology just like uh i feel like we've had this conversation it's just like maybe we have but i, I don't remember what epistemology like where things come from relating to knowledge you know the theory the theory of knowledge you know Oh yes, like not ways quite of, etymology. Way, no, not etymology. No, yeah, yeah. We have we have had this conversation. Yeah, so that that's that's really good. And I, I've had this book. I've had the physical version of this book on my shelf for about five years or something. Yeah, the same the, the, the physical version just looks really daunting. Like it's a yeah. it's a big ass book, and the font size and the is font really is small. small. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> mate, the font small font size in books needs to yeah. be sorted out. 
this is why I read Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire before any of the others because <laughs> it had the biggest font size when I was like six. Yeah, I actually only read picture books for that reason. <laughs> uh, yeah, but I think the audiobook was like, I think when you're listening to an audiobook, you don't you don't know how daunting the book is. Like you don't get to see that it's like loads of pages. You don't get to see how small the font is, and so you can approach it with fresh mind. Whereas I feel like if I was approaching like a a hefty tome with tiny font size in real life, I'd feel I don't know inadequate or something. I'd feel like oh, there's no way I'm ever going to finish this book, you know? <laughs> yep. But okay. yeah, audiobook on two uh, x speed, two point one, two point one. Speed. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> that's going to be uh, your hate comments that are going to make it from that oh my god you can't enjoy audiobooks at double speed why not slow down and smell the roses on the way um that's that's actually the nice thing about like listening to audiobooks while on a walk you 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 get to smell the roses you get to like see the nature and the birds and stuff and then you're also listening to like something interesting oh on that note um another triviality i want to share is i've been i found immense value in listening to audiobooks while playing playstation really it's so, it's so good it's like the ultimate <laughs> what kind of audiobooks like fiction? Uh, oh yeah yeah fantasy um oh nice. i'm big on i'm big on fiction audiobooks and it's great because especially because i'm playing demon souls which is like a very hard game and so i'm having to consist like sort of do an area die do an area die and then yeah. it's sort of i go a little bit further each time yeah. to the point where it becomes almost a hindbrain function for me to clear the first few baddies yeah, yeah and yeah. i kind of know what i'm doing in my sleep mm. until i get to a bit where i'm like okay i need to concentrate now then that's when it. i pause the audio <laughs> but like for the grindy bits it's yeah. so good and i can imagine if i was playing like wow world of warcraft or something and grinding out boars or doing fishing and stuff yeah yeah, yeah. listening to an audiobook would be absolutely fantastic that would be really good yeah or even fishing in real life or something. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dude, that's actually a sick idea. <laughs> like just finding some, finding some passive hobby <laughs> like fishing, and then like slapping an audiobook on top. Yeah, I mean that's kind of what, what like what people do with running, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. None of my running friends actually like listen to podcasts or audiobooks. I I feel like my serious running friends. Oh, they're in the zone. They're in the zone. They're in it for the running. Yeah, I was speaking to some dude who, who, who I met at the gym several weeks ago about this audiobook thing. And I was like, yes, yeah, so, so, so do you listen to audiobooks and podcasts while you're at the gym? And he said, lol, no, while I'm at the gym, I train. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, all right, mate. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Right, Arnold. <laughs> it's uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger, famous bodybuilder. Oh, okay, fine. Anyway, shall we go into your... Uh... I feel like I had some more trivialities. I, 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 kept on, I kept on racking up the trivialities in my life thinking I want to share them with you and I, I've, I've forgotten half of them. It's fine. We, we can use them for next time. That's a real shame. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure everyone is dying to hear about them. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, onto my uh, existential period. Uh, I feel like I'm doing a lot of thinking um, about, I think about like partly, so I think partly it's about sort of religion and stuff like that. And I've been reading... Um, a lot of sort of philosophy of religion and that kind of stuff. Um, and then it's partly about like, yeah, introspection about my own sort of motivations and, and, and things like that. Um, I think once I have sort of structured things, structured my thoughts a bit more on the uh, philosophy of religion stuff, I think that's definitely something we should chat about on the podcast. Um, but today I, I read some really, really good um, blog posts slash articles about yeah, about like motivation. I feel like um, for the <laughs> for the past few weeks, I've kind of felt like a lack of. Yeah, I know you feel like motivation is a myth or whatever, um, but I've, I've I've sort of I felt a lack of drive or like motivation to. I feel like I'm not taking the startup seriously enough. You know, I feel like I'm just kind of too comfortable and just kind of chilling a bit. Um, you know, I, I feel like 
some somewhere somewhere something is not quite right with my sort of circuits for like why I'm doing this and what I care about in life and things like that. And so I've I've been trying to sort of explore that. Uh, and there was a and there was a really this is a really good podcast. There's this guy there's a guy called James Summers who I think is a really like really really good writer on the internet. Um, you should def- definitely check his out uh, his blog out jsummers.net. We'll link it in the show notes probably if we remember. Um, I've kind of read read a bunch of his stuff and I always find it really good. And I rediscovered his blog via something recently. He has a he has a a post called "How to Be a Loser." All right, uh, it's not Sounds that like long. A good title for I'll, a video. I'll just read out the post. I, yeah, think, I think you can definitely milk a bunch of like productivity guru stuff from, from him. Oh, great. Um, all right. So how to be a loser. If you think of losing as not winning, then when you try to work out why you've lost or God forbid, why you're a loser, you'll tend to focus on the things you didn't do and the qualities you don't have. So it goes with any negative concept, one that is defined by what it isn't. Uh, all right. I messed up the intonation on that sentence. So it goes with any negative concept, one that is defined by what it isn't. I think it's worthwhile to occasionally invert the picture to see being a winner as not being a loser. That way you attend to those habits of mind that are hurting you instead of the ones that might be helping. In any case, here are what I take to be the three key features of a loser. One, a loser wants to lose. It seems unlikely that anyone would try to fail until you realize that high expectations are emotionally and mentally expensive. By that, I mean that there is a lot more pressure, angst, self-doubt, and in general, reflexive cognitive corrosion when there's a good chance you'll win compared to when you think you're likely to lose, which is precisely the reason that mental self-discipline of the Tiger Obama variety is so valuable. Uh, Tiger Obama variety is linked to a New York Times uh, piece about Obama. I'm not going to go into that. Um, As an example, competitive cross-country races in eighth grade terrified me, whereas in high school, I thought of them more like physically challenging but basically fun diversions. The difference is that I went from being the best on the team in eighth grade to out of contention in ninth, and I found this latter state of affairs a lot more comfortable. Now, the problem with that is that there is nothing more kryptonitic to a person's fighting spirit and to winning than comfort. Nobody ever got anything done by being comfortable. If you are not working hard, you are not learning. If you never get past that point when a new project becomes actually difficult, where the marginal returns flatten out, then you will never be a master. Everything worthwhile is going to hurt, and if you avoid pain, you will fail, etc. Which is to say that by expecting not to win, likely because it's easy to think of yourself as basically out of the running and out there just to have a good time, because it's easier to try to try than to do, this concept of trying to try, this is like game-changing. It's easier to try to try than to do. You've basically condemned yourself to lose. The best explicit illustration of this phenomenon I've ever seen was in The Hustler, 1961, a film where Paul Newman stars as Fast Eddie Felsen, a troubled pool shark. In the scene I'm referring to, Fast Eddie very nearly defeats the best in the biz, one Minnesota Fats, before going down in a self-destructive spiral. It's a great moment. Here's the aftermath. Um, Character A says to character B, uh, Eddie, is it all right if I get personal? Eddie says, what have you been so far? And then the guy says, Eddie, you're a born loser. Eddie says, what's that supposed to mean? And uh, the guy's name is Bert Gordon. First time in 10 years I ever saw Minnesota Fats hooked, really hooked, but you let him off. Which is to say that this Eddie was like really almost beating this guy in Minnesota Fats. And then he like lost in the end. And then Eddie says, I told you I got drunk. And then Brett Gordon says, sure, you got drunk. You have the best excuse in the world for losing. No trouble losing when you got a good excuse. Winning. That can be heavy on your back too, like a monkey. You'll drop that load too when you got an excuse. 
All you got to do is learn to feel sorry for yourself. One of the best indoor sports, feeling sorry for yourself. A sport enjoyed by all, especially the born losers. And then Eddie says, thanks for the drink. Uh, it's pretty, pretty good. It, one of the best indoor sports, feeling sorry for yourself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so that, that, that was, that was uh, point one, a loser wants to lose. Point two, a loser projects to the probable end game. One hears roughly this line of reasoning all the time. I want to be a writer, but odds are that I won't be a world-class writer or even an exceptional one. At best, I'll probably end up spitting out 500 horribly mundane words a week covering local politics in Minneapolis, for God's sake. Uh, And do I really want to put in all the hours? Do I really want to grind for that? I think I'll take my chances elsewhere. Of course, it's important to be able to nip dead-end prospects in the bud, for otherwise you'd be wasting all kinds of time and energy, but losers do this all the time. Why? The answer, I think, is because it feels prudent to stand back from people who have effectively committed their lives to hapless mediocrity. Why not wait instead? Why not take one's chances elsewhere? The idea has lots of appeal. It's difficult to commit oneself to something, a career for instance, if all you see is the most likely unexceptional scenario 10 years down the road. Why bother? Why not wait until you're so excited about something so passionate that not devoting your life to it would hardly even occur to you? Well, the fact is that the world turns, and if your internal timepiece doesn't get wise to that idea, You'll never be able to catch up to the people whose has. It reminds me of the nameplate my dad always had on his desk. On one side was his name, and this was facing the visitor, naturally, but facing him was the phrase, have a sense of urgency. I thought that was a strangely uninspiring thing to have to look at all day, but it turns out to be very good advice. Every act of ingenuity has at its core some demanding constraints, and if you don't have any handy, you might as well cook one up. So that was point number two, a loser projects to the probable endgame. And point number three, a loser rests on his laurels. I once asked a winner, a smart, healthy, happy guy worth more than $20 million, to name his greatest accomplishment. And he said, I haven't done anything yet. A bit of rhetorical flair there, but the point is that a loser has the opposite attitude. He is constantly recalling his latest accomplishment, either publicly, usually wrapped in modesty or nonchalance, or to himself. It's a common misconception, I think, to assume that losers are unhappy or that they invariably have a low self-esteem. Quite the contrary, losers keep their egos fat with constant snacks, and they're all the more satiable as they age. Thoreau said that most men lead lives of quiet desperation. It seems that that's true, but with the following provisio. Some men do eke out contentment, and they get there by gradually ratcheting down their expectations. Their appetites fade. They compromise and rationalize and eventually settle. That's the loser's consolation prize. Um, so that's, that's the piece. So I guess three points. A loser wants to lose. A loser projects the probable end game uh, and a loser rests on his laurels. Mm. Um, what do you think? That's very interesting. Um, a, a lot to think about there. Yeah. Um, so here's, here's the thing. Like there are certainly, there, there are parts of this which would trigger my like uh, problematic frame yeah. uh, sen- <laughs> senses. For example, there's Quite. a part in which he says, uh, if you want to catch up to other people, uh, there's a part in which he says that... Uh, uh where was it something about like pain being necessary uh there there are definitely like parts of this which who knows whether they're accurate or not but i i I wouldn't like to subscribe to them i don't really subscribe to them but i think the thing about the thing about a loser wanting to lose i feel like i sometimes have this mindset i actually i feel like i often have this mindset this mindset this mindset of like it's 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 nice if you kind of put yourself completely out of the running it's not nice when you know you when you know there's a chance that you can win, but you have to like really go for it in order to win, you know? <laughs> yeah, uh, absolutely. And like, I think I, I felt this way. I think I felt this way. When I, I dabbled in a bit of rowing uh, at university in first year. 
And I remember there was like a race at the end of the year or something. Um, and like, yeah, I've actually, I feel like this is a recurring sort of theme where I will, I will sort of shy away from things where, um, I, where I know that like I, I could do it, <laughs> but I'll have to like, I'll have to like really go for it in order to do it. You know, I, I, I don't think I've, I've really done any things like that. And I think I, I tend to avoid things like that. Um, I much prefer things where I'm guaranteed to be able to do something or I'm guaranteed not to be able to do something where the, the middle where like it, where it's, it's down to you <laughs> as to whether you do it or not, rather than down to inevitability. I, I don't really think I've done anything like that. Or maybe there've been like a couple of things in my life, but generally like, I feel like I like to put myself out of the running and I fear that like my mindset when it comes to causal is probably a bit too lax. Um, I don't think I have a mindset of like, uh, you know, oh, we're going to, you know, we're kind of bound to lose or whatever. I, I don't think it's that at all, but I do think, okay, so l- let me introduce the second article. So uh, in the, in the phrase, try to try, he links to um, a less wrong post. Uh, are you familiar with less wrong? Um, it's a rationality blog uh, called trying to try. Uh, this is also a short post. I'll just read it out. <clears throat> All right. Trying to try. Uh, the post begins with a quote by Yoda. He says, no, try not. Do or do not. There is no try. Uh, years ago, I thought this was yet another example of deep wisdom that is actually quite stupid. Succeed is not a primitive action. You can't just decide to win by choosing hard enough. There is a never, there is never a plan that works with probability one, i.e. with certainty. But Yoda was wiser than I first realized. The first elementary technique of epistemology is not, it's not deep, but it's cheap, is to distinguish the quotation from the referent. Talking about snow is not the same as talking about snow in inverted commas. When I use the word snow without quotes, I mean to talk about snow. And when I use the word snow with quotes, I mean to talk about the word snow. You have to enter a special mode, the quotation mode, to talk about your beliefs. By default, we just talk about reality. If someone says, I'm going to flip that switch, then by default, they mean that they're going to try to flip flip the switch. They're going to build a plan that promises to lead by the consequences of its actions to the goal state of a flipped switch, and then execute that plan. No plan succeeds with infinite certainty. So by default, when you talk about setting out to achieve a goal, you do not imply that your plan exactly and perfectly leads to only that possibility. But when you say, I'm going to flip that switch, you're trying only to flip the switch, not trying to achieve a 97.2% probability of flipping that switch. Mm. So what does it mean when someone says, I'm going to try to flip that switch? Well, colloquially, I'm going to flip the switch and I'm going to try to flip the switch mean more or less the same thing except that the latter expresses the the possibility of failure. This is why I originally took offense at Yoda for seeming to deny the possibility. But bear with me here. Much of life's challenge consists of holding ourselves to a high enough standard. I may speak more on this principle later because it's a lens through which you can view many but not all personal dilemmas. What standard am I holding myself to? Is it high enough? So if much of life's failure consists in holding yourself to too low a standard, you should be wary of demanding too little of yourself from setting goals that are too easy to fulfill. Often where succeeding to do a thing is very hard, trying to do it is much easier. Which is easier, to build a successful startup or to try to build a successful startup? To make a million dollars or to try to make a million dollars? So if I'm going to flip the switch means by default that you're going to try to flip the switch, that is, you're going to set up a plan that promises to lead to switch flipped state, maybe not with probability one, but with the highest probability you can you can manage, then I'm going to try to flip the, the switch means that you're going to try to try to flip flip the switch. That is, you're going to try to achieve the goal state of having a plan that might flip the switch. 
<clears throat> now, if this were a self-modifying AI we were talking about, the transformation we just performed ought to end up at a reflective equilibrium, the AI planning its planning operations. But when we deal with humans, being satisfied with having a plan is not at all like being satisfied with success. The part where the plan has to maximize your probability of succeeding gets lost along the way. It's far easier to convince ourselves that we are maximizing our probability of succeeding than it is to convince ourselves that we will succeed. Almost any effort will serve to convince us that we have tried our hardest, if trying our hardest is all we're trying to do. As a quote from uh, Stephen Brust from The Paths of the Dead, you've been asking what you could do in the great events that are now stirring and have, and have found that you could do nothing. But that is because your suffering has caused you to phrase the question in the wrong way. Instead of asking what you could do, you ought to have been asking what needs to be done. When you ask, what can I do? You're trying to do your best. What is your best? It is whatever you can do without the slightest inconvenience. It is whatever you can do with the money in your pocket, minus whatever you need for your accustomed lunch. What you can do with those resources may not give you very good odds of winning, but it's the best you can do, and so you've acted defensively, right? But what needs to be done? Maybe what needs to be done requires three times your life savings, and you must produce it or fail. So trying to have maximized your probability of success, as opposed to trying to succeed, is a far lesser barrier. You can have maximized your probability of success using only the money in your pocket, so long as you don't demand actually winning. Want to try? Want to try to make a million dollars? Buy a lottery ticket. Your odds of winning may not very be very good, but you did try, and trying was the thing you wanted. In fact, you tried your best since you only had one dollar left after buying lunch. Maximizing the odds of gold achievement using available resources is this not intelligence? It's only when you want, above all else, to actually flip the switch, without quotation and without consolation prizes just for trying, that you will actually put in the effort to actually maximize the probability. But if all you want to do is maximize the probability of success using available resources, then the easiest thing in the world is to convince yourself that you've done that. The very first plan you hit upon will serve quite well as maximizing. If necessary, you can generate an inferior alternative to prove its optimality, and any tiny resource that you care to put in will be what is available. Remember to congratulate yourself on putting in 100% of it. Don't try your best. Win or fail. There is no best. Does that kind of make sense? I feel like... Uh, yeah. Uh, I think I definitely want to re reread it yeah, a few it's, times. It's, just it's, to, it's worth it's reading. It's like a dense thing that yeah. you have to think about as, as you're going along. Yeah, it's, it's very wordy and like I probably put like wrong emphasis on things. Well, I think the way so. you read it was absolutely fine. It's just, to, you know... Oh, okay. I think if you're not used to thinking about things in that right. fashion, then yeah. Yeah, but basically this really reminded me of, I think we were having this conversation, we talked about this on the podcast, about like, you know, sometimes when you're working, you're working in order to feel like you've done some work. You're not working in order to like actually achieve the outcome you want. And this idea of like trying to try, I feel like I'm definitely guilty of sort of falling into this. Like, I, I, I feel like a lot of the time I just want to kind of sort of, I, I suppose like feed my ego or whatever and just like convince myself that I gave something a good shot you know, rather than actually fully going for it with the intention of succeeding at something, rather than with the intention of having a defensible position of like, oh, I tried my best or I tried hard or whatever. Um, I think like, you know, this is something that, I think this idea of like having excuses or having like plausible deniability or whatever uh, is, is something that comes up in various places. What are you writing down? Um, notes on what you're saying. Oh, okay. Uh, so there's, yeah, this this idea of like, you know, having plausible deniability or having like, you know, being able to give an excuse for why something didn't work out. I, I think I definitely fall victim to like being satisfied if I have an excuse, if I have a convincing excuse for myself as to why something didn't happen or why something didn't work. Um, and I think, yeah, going back to the startup thing, I think like partly 
a lot of what I'm doing is just like wanting to stay comfortable in the fact that I'm like giving it a shot or something like that, you know, just feeling like I'm, you know, feeling like I'm doing some work rather than genuinely trying to achieve the end outcome. Um, and I think this is a really bad mindset, this idea of like trying, trying to try or like having excuses and stuff. Um, there's, there's another, um, man, there's going to be a lot of quotes in this episode. Uh, hang on before you go there. Um, this is a lot of the stuff that I've been thinking about recently in that, but I didn't quite have the terminology to describe it because one thing I've been struggling with, which I probably talked to you about and on the podcast at some point is this idea of goal setting. Like, do you actually try and set a goal? Um, for example, a goal, like I want to get to a million dollars in revenue by the end of the year. Yeah. Or do you instead only set process goals, which, which are like, well, I just want to make two videos a week and then I'll be happy. Yeah. And on the one hand, the outcome goal is outside of your control, right? Like, you know, just using the YouTube example, how many views or how many subscribers or how many likes my video gets is completely outside of my control. Um, or rather is in a large part outside of my control. The only bit that's fully in my control is the fact that I'm putting out two or three videos a week. And so historically, I've been loath to set any kind of numerical goal like that because it's like, well, this is just this feels like just a recipe for unhappiness and a recipe for, you know, setting a goal is like um, choosing to be unhappy until you're, you've hit that goal. And then once you hit the goal, like, OK, then you just move on to the next one and you don't really you don't really think about it. Um, right. But then. I am sort of on the verge of changing my mind about this. And there was a guy I did an interview with on YouTube called Ben Hardy, and he's like a psychologist and he's written books about like goal setting and things. And his thing was like, this is a ridiculous false dichotomy. Like he really, yeah. he was just like fully sort of slated me that, you know, the people who think that are dumbasses and they don't know what they're talking about because what you can do is you can set an outcome-based goal. It's just that you, the next step is you, that you need to, not have your own self-esteem reliant on you hitting that goal Mm. and you can absolutely hold both positions that i'm going to go for this sort of quote ambitious uh or aspirational goal (laughs) um but if i don't hit it i'm not going to feel i'm 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 not going to get depressed about it essentially yeah yeah. um and relatedly recently (laughs) have you have have you come across a book called the secret Mm, no what is it this the secret is like one of those ridiculously high best-selling books which is all about like the power of kind of it's it's based around this concept of the law of attraction and basically the idea behind the secret is that there is this fundamental force in the universe called the law of attraction and if you want something enough then mm. the atoms in the universe will align in a way to get you the thing wait was this like one of the og self help books from the 70s yes. or something yeah yeah it really was. I, I don't know if it was in the 70s but like yeah it was definitely one of the og self help books and like yeah. freaking oprah shouted it out and right, it sort of yeah, sold like yeah. 30 million plus copies and it's got like a whole cult following behind it and i was listening to the audiobook while at the gym and so for, for 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 the first few kind of minutes of it i was like okay this seems reasonable and then they started going on about stuff like you know for example there was an example of a lady who had breast cancer and she just willed it hard enough and the cancer went away and that is the power of the law of attraction and i was like all right <laughs> um and so i went down this rabbit hole of like how how the hell is this such a such a popular book and there's there is something to it in the sense that there's a you know this the scientific base of it is this this or the one of the scientific explanations that people have come up with for this 
there's this thing called the reticular activating system in, in the brain, which is essentially what dictates uh, the things that we pay attention to. Yeah. So for example, when I was about to buy a Tesla, suddenly I was seeing Teslas on the road everywhere, despite having not really noticed them before. And when I was, yeah, yeah you know, the, the, that, that kind of thing. So when you set a certain intention, yeah. it then dictates the things that you pay attention to. Yeah. And so to an extent, I've, I've been thinking about, okay, how can, an, like, the, this is definitely a thing. And I feel like, for me as well, I have held back from trying to achieve, quote, ambitious goals, partly because of all the, oh, this feels problematic that comes in my head every time I say these things, uh, even to myself, but also partly because of this fear of, well, you know, I'm enlightened, therefore I only want to set goals that are fully in my own control. And so since I came across this, there are two goals that I've set. Um, one is that this book that I'm writing, I wanted to become a bestseller. And previously I had... What does it mean for a book to be a bestseller, by the way? Oh, just to, to hit like a bestselling list basically requires like a certain amount of pl- promotion and PR and, and stuff. Oh, okay. I don't, I don't quite know, but it's like a badge of honor. And it's like one of those things where like, I know it doesn't actually mean anything, but like, it still feels like I, I want this book to become a bestseller. Okay. And I set this goal and I was like, okay, let's see what happens. Um, and I was like, I'm, I'm, I'm going to take this seriously. And I, I actually found that over the last few months since I've set that goal, I've been seeing more and more opportunities, mostly in the realm of sort of reaching out to people who could help with, with this book becoming a bestseller. Yeah. And so, for example, I was doing an exercise uh, for like my marketing coach where I was like, you know, write about people that, like you know, mentors that you've had in your life. And I was writing about this guy called Austin Cleon, who wrote a book called Show Your Work, which really affected me in 2016. And as I, I wrote a few paragraphs about how his thing kind of helped me, I was like, you know what? why don't I just email him and just copy and paste this to him? So I emailed him, copied and pasted him, posted a postscript saying, by the way, Austin, if you ever want to do an interview on my YouTube channel, I'd love to chat to you. And he was down for that. And we chatted for like two hours. And that was one of the episodes of this podcast a few weeks ago, which people said was pretty solid. And then afterwards he was like, hey man, if you ever need any help with the book, just hit me up. I'm here anytime. I'm working from home. I've got nothing to do. I was like, oh, sick. Nice. This works. Um, And sort of that and a few other examples where I was like, I sort of, setting that intention meant it just occurred to me to reach out to someone who yeah, I otherwise yeah, yeah. wouldn't reach out to. Like, you know, there's this guy called Ryan Holiday, who's like famous, a famous writer who writes lots of best-selling books. I reached out to him uh, <laughs> through, through a, a third party, through, through, through a friend. And he, he came on my channel. We had a chat. He was like, yeah, I'll help you out with the book if you need it. I was like, damn, this is, this is awesome. Yeah. And, you know, it, part, part of me wants to think that, okay, it's not even my goal for this to become a bestseller because it's outside of my control. But another part of me is like, but I actually kind of want this and, and, and it would be nice. So that was kind of goal number one where it's like, okay, I'm trying, trying for this thing. Yeah, yeah. There was an example, there was, there was one situation where I think I, again, using this book thing as an example, I'd, I had a chat with this guy called Alex Banayan who wrote a book called The Third Door, which was one of my favorite books of last year. And he, again, I, I interviewed him on, on, the, on the YouTube channel. And it took him like seven years to write his book. And one of the stories that he tells is that you know, he, he, he was writing a generic self-help book, like lessons from the world's most successful people. And then someone asked him, do you want this to be a good book or do you want this book to change lives? And he said, I want this book to change lives. And the guy told him uh, that, okay, if you want this book to change lives, you've got to completely change the format that you're doing it. You've got to turn it into a narrative and you've got to put like five years of effort into this book. And he put years of effort into this book and that book kind of changed lives. And it's actually a fantastic book. And so I was thinking about this while I was, while I was talking to him and I was thinking, do I want my future book change lives and the only answer i could come up with was no that i don't want yes in a way i want it but i don't want to want to want it because (laughs) then it means that i i i now have to yeah put a lot of blood sweat and tears into this to make it happen yeah whereas if i 
merely set the goal of I just want to write a book and I just want it to do reasonably well. Like it's, it's going to do reasonably well by default. That is a very, very achievable goal because once you have subscribers on YouTube, I can just ask people to buy my book. Like yeah, yeah. That, that's not, it's, it's not particularly ambitious. It's not particularly interesting. It's not much of a story. And this goes back to that thing that you and I talked about when I read Donald Miller's A Million Miles in a Thousand Years, which is that at each junction in your life, ask yourself, what would make the better story here? And yeah. stories are made out of struggle and out of um, aspiring towards something that is hard. And at the time, both you and I were like, well, n- not really sure about this because this feels like a, di- a problematic way of living life and all that, all that kind of stuff. But recently, I've, 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 begun, I've begun to move closer in that, in that direction thinking, actually, mm-hmm. what if I just set like a super ambitious goal and actually, actually work towards it rather than just trying to try it to work towards it or yeah, to, yeah. rather than just uh, sort of achieving a goal of hitting two videos a week, which is trivial, but actually hitting a goal of I want to get an extra million subscribers in the next three months. Yeah. Okay. That's interesting. That actually changes the way that I would approach my yeah, life. Yeah, 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 exactly. The other one is on the money front. And <laughs> I know people don't like it. Some people don't like it when I talk about money. So I'm just, I'm, I'll, I'll keep this brief. But I was speaking to someone, uh, again, the, this was Noah Kagan, uh, who, again, I, I interviewed on a YouTube stream, which was one of the episodes, one of the in-between episodes here. And we had lots of good feedback about that. And I don't know if it was during the interview or afterwards, but he said to me, look, man, your YouTube channel could be a $10 million a year business. And before he said that, that that number was just not in my mind in the slightest like i had i was not even thinking about money i was thinking like the, the youtube channel is doing reasonably well like whatever yeah yeah but then he said this 10 million dollar he was like yeah it'll, it'll be pretty straightforward for you to scale this to, to 10 million a year and i was like hang on 10 million <laughs> yeah that's a lot of million yeah that, that, that's a lot of million yeah um and kind of si- since that point i've i occasionally find myself thinking about this 10 million number and i think just the fact that he said it and i now have this as a this is even a remote possibility. Yeah. Like this dude thinks that this is reasonable. It's It has changed the way that I approach. I I, I feel like when it came to YouTube and, and the content and like the monetization around it, yeah. I was playing a very small small time game. And by small time, I mean like, you know, a few, like six figures a year as opposed to eight figures a year. Yeah. But but the six figures a year was like eminently achievable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that was the game that I was playing. Whereas now I'm kind of excited by the prospect of playing the eight figures a year game. Yeah. And it just feels kind of fun Mm. and what i'm trying to do is i'm not sure if anyone could relate to this at all but what i'm trying to do is have that goal of i want this business to make 10 million a year but also not have that dictate my own self-esteem that for example if we only make one million a year then the life sucks doesn't it yeah and what i'm trying to appreciate is just this sort of sort of yin and yang thing of like Mm. (laughs) being able to have a goal but subsequent but uh sort of at the same time yeah not not have my own self-esteem rely on the goal. Don't know yeah. if any of that makes sense. Yeah, no, I think that's great stuff. I think like this concept of like, yeah, I think a lot, a lot of like discussions about this stuff, it basically, it's it's all just like bullshit at the end of the day. It's all just wordplay because <laughs> like you can you can do both things. Like you, you can hold two seemingly opposing concepts at the same time and you you can sort of do those things. And so, yeah, I think I think like, uh, yeah, the, the framing of like, are uh, like, you either have to not have goals and just focus on the process or you have to like have the goal and like be sad if you don't accomplish the goal. Mm-hmm. That's just like, yeah, complete false it, dichotomy. It, yeah. yeah, it's yes, just yeah. a false dichotomy. And I, th- I think like in so many of these discussions, like, I, yeah, there's just like so, so much like bad thinking and bad thought process. And it, it all just comes down to like rhetoric and wordplay of like, you can read something and yeah, think that, oh, this is a dichotomy. You can't do both things. Whereas I feel like it, it I've seen this pattern come up so many times where 
you can do both things like both things can <laughs> can kind of exist and mm. so i think like i think on the on the goal thing like i think okay so th this this nicely brings us on to another thing i wanted to read out uh let me bring it up this is i think i mentioned this a few months ago this was a, a thread by uh, venkatesh rao on twitter about um yeah about like goals i guess all right he says uh yeah i think i i think i i, I read this out before right he says there's lots of uh, there's lots of different motivations there's wanting the thing there's wanting to be seen to want the thing there is wanting to do the things needed to do the thing there's wanting to be seen to do the things needed to do the thing <laughs> i think that was actually really common wanting to be seen to do the things needed to do the thing there's wanting to want the thing there's wanting to want to do the thing. There's wanting to have done the thing. Yeah, there's all these different motivations. Th that was one tweet he did. Uh, and then he quote tweets that and says, the older I get, the more it sinks in that 90% of effectiveness is just taking a thing seriously enough. That translates to just wanting the thing itself rather than adjacent things that may or may not happen as a side effect. Most things sort themselves out if you're serious. When you're serious, you're naturally efficient because you don't get distracted by side goals. You're naturally as productive as needed because under or overshooting. Uh, wait, what? Naturally, all right, ignore that sentence. Uh, most of the time, ambiguity in goal setting is not about wanting the wrong thing or being confused about you know means to ends. It is about wanting the the thing wrong. So not about wanting the wrong thing, but wanting the thing <laughs> oh, wrong. Nice. How does he do it? Oh, this guy. <laughs> That's great. That's you fantastic. You want to want the thing. You want to want the thing itself. The naked nominal stated goal, not psychologically adjacent bullshit. Half of experience is recognizing when you want the thing versus when you want the thing only because you unconsciously want something else that's a potential side effect you don't want to come to. The inefficiency of unacknowledged goals cannot be six sigma away. Six sigma is some like industrial process for like uh, ignore that. Um, basically, there. You you can't Sorry, just wait, like wait, 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 the, the inefficiency of unacknowledged goals Ooh. cannot be like six sigma away. There's no like process that will like you know get over this inefficiency yeah. of aiming at the wrong goals. If you're working out to look good or for it or for an endorphin rush, but pretending to work out for strength or health, the dissonance will make you ineffective at both. There's something like starter motivation though. Many entrepreneurs start out with chip on shoulder motives, like wanting to prove their worth to some bully who punched them at age eight. But the good ones eventually graduate to wanting the actual thing they're building. Motivation is a skill. Wanting things is not something you can just do beyond lollipop level at age three. You have to learn to zoom in on the thing that vaguely attracts you with enough precision that the motivational feedback loop kicks in, like a starter motor. This means iterating through various configurations of means and ends, laying on your couch until the energy surge kicks in and gets you off the couch, knowing precisely what to do. Energy must, must match precision, otherwise you're still confused. If you feel like you're going to bust through lack of clarity about what you actually want with raw force, you're in for disappointment. Motivational ambiguity and uncertainty is not the same as environmental uncertainty and ambiguity. It doesn't yield to brute force. You can like brute force your way if the sort of uncertainty is in the environment, but if the uncertainty is, is in your head about what you actually care about, no amount of brute force will, you know, make that go away. The 20s are easy. Almost <laughs> this is good. Almost everything people think they want turns out to be indirectly about wanting sex or a partner <laughs> or dealing with the <laughs> or dealing with the inability to get them. Once you sort out your feelings about that, motivation around other things gets much simpler. Things get messy at age, at age 30. Uh, Venkatesh is in his, in his sort of mid to late 40s, I think. Uh, kids know how to actually want things until they turn into teens. Then it gets so hard, they start failing badly at it. 
attribute it to angst, and decide they'll never be able to want things with the clarity of an eight-year-old again. This is not true. You just have to learn the adult version. A lot of goal selection precision is just emotional range in disguise. The more feelings you felt and the wider the range of intensities, the more the right goals will click unmistakably in any situation. Um, Gen Z seems to be rediscovering Gendlin slash focusing for training this. I don't know what that means. Uh, verbal precision is equally important for complex goals, though. Goal motivation fit is the right word or phrase locking into the right precise emotion about a thing. Uh, for simple, more somatic goals, something like the description of archery in Herigl's Zen uh, and the Art of Archery is a good guide. That's some book. Or the Inner Game of Tennis. That's another book. Uh, but for something like a large corporate team project, words become necessary. Hollywood has a good model for this in terms of the high concept of movie pitches. A bad failure mode is when means are clearer than ends. You half-ass learning to want to learning to want to get a good job because the means do well in college doesn't require that clarity of purpose. Wait, um, say that again. You half-ass. All right. Yeah. So he said a bad failure mode is when the means are clearer than the ends. So okay. you 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 sort of half-assedly learn to want to get a good job. Because the means to do that are like really clear. The means to get the good job is to do well in college. And so in this case, you know, you don't really care about like getting the good job or whatever. Your, your motivation about wanting the good job is unclear, but the means are very obvious. The means are like do well in college. And so he says, this is a bad failure mode when the means are clearer Ooh. than the ends. Um, and so like you can work your ass off in college without real clarity of purpose about like what you actually want. And whether you actually want a good job and why you actually want a good job. Uh, mm. And then he says, then you get the job and realize you don't want it because you never interrogated the goal. Mm. Uh, a big part of locking on to most motivationally sustainable goals is learning to quit unsustainable ones. This means taking not feeling it, feeling, taking the not feeling it feeling seriously. So like if you're not, if you're like constantly not feeling like doing something, he's saying you should actually listen to that. And that kind of suggests that somewhere, somewhere along the way, like, your sort of motivation circuits are a bit messed up and you don't actually care about the thing that, that you think you care about, maybe. Um, he says, it's almost always a necessary and sufficient reason to quit uh, or phone it in at a bare minimum if you can't actually quit. Uh, emotion, uh, next tweet is, emotional fail fast heuristic. Sometimes this is misleading, but usually there's something off internally and often externally as well. Um, he's saying, move fast and break things, feel fast and break goals, crash early, crash often. Sometimes you can name the reason for quitting, for example, being afraid, and that itself can supply a new motivation for doing it, for example, building courage. But then you'll do it differently, like running at the high-risk part instead of navigating around it, wondering why you're doing it at all. Um, yeah, I'll be honest, I need, yeah, I, I don't know. This is like, I will link to the thread. This requires reading and reflection and stuff like that. But he's basically, mm. basically your motivate, you know, goal setting is all well and good. Got nothing wrong with goal setting. Uh, at least he doesn't seem to think so but you have to like actually want the thing not want something adjacent to the thing so for example you know when you mentioned that you have this goal of wanting to be it to be a bestseller or something that mm. still feels kind of off to me i think like go I'm, I'm fine with goals you know elon musk seems to have this goal of wanting life on mars or whatever right and like he he's he seems to be very aligned towards that and like singularly focused on on that ridiculous goal right like getting life on mars um Wanting wanting your book to be a bestseller, I don't know. It 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 feels kind of off. It feels like you you're wanting something adjacent to that, right? Like, um, you're wanting a side effect of that. You're wanting like it. It seems like a, a a weird thing to to want intrinsically for its own sake because 
as you said, like it's it's not like a fundamental concept, a book being a bestseller. No, it's, it's like not. Go, having um, humans it's... on the moon is a pretty concrete and fundamental concept. A book being a bestseller is like really nebulous and like externally defined and you know so what do you actually want there i think what i actually want is a really good book and getting it onto a bestseller list is like a very very inefficient proxy for really good book what do you mean by really good book right um i mean i want someone who doesn't already know me to pick it up read it all the way through and think damn this was a good this was a really good book okay like the reaction I have with really good books that I read, like, you know, something like Atomic Habits or something like The Third Door or something like Mr. Okay. Like, yeah, damn, yeah. that's a really good book. Like, that is the feeling that I want. And yeah. this is like the first time in a long time that I am putting myself out there in an arena where it would be open to judgment from strangers in a way that kind of like a YouTube video and a podcast like really isn't. Wait, what do you um, mean? As in, for example, having a book that appears in a bookshop opens you to criticism in a way that having a video on YouTube doesn't really. At least, some, yeah, like, for example, if I made a YouTube video and people were like, this this YouTube video sucks, I couldn't, couldn't care less. But if I wrote a book and it was in a bookshop and someone bought it and then said, left a review saying, this book sucks, <laughs> yeah. I would definitely care about it a lot more. Wait, why is that? But yeah, I think I think actually on reflection, it's, pretty, it's, it's probably just because I'm not, I'm, I'm experienced with the one and not the other. Like, hmm. I imagine some people... If, if you said, hey, record a video of yourself talking and put it online and people are going to hate on it, that would absolutely crush people, potentially. Yeah. Whereas if you do it enough, you're like, oh, whatever. Hmm. Equally, I guess, kind of experienced authors are just like, oh, yeah, negative reviews, <laughs> who cares? And for them, probably putting a YouTube video feels more terrifying. Maybe it is just a case of, yeah. Wait, so what do you actually want? So you want, you want a really good book. I want a really good book, but I want to also... Then why not aim for a really good book? Why aim for a bestseller? I mean, like like you said, like... Surely, like with a million YouTube, million or whatever YouTube subscribers, you can be a bestseller just by your existing audience, right? Um, not necessarily. Oh, okay. Like it does. It does. It does require more than that. I think. Um, I don't know what it takes to <laughs> become a bestseller. Uh, but I'm sure there are mediocre books that are bestsellers, right? Yeah, I guess so. Um, hmm. Why not aim towards having a really good book? Like, oh, wouldn't that change how you do okay. things? Like, okay, there are a lot so of hacks aiming... to becoming bestseller, right? Oh yeah, yeah. So I. So so what I'm. So okay. Aiming for it to be a really good book is like what I'm aiming for anyway. Um, okay. Whereas aiming for it to become a bestseller was not previously what I was aiming for anyway. And in addition to it being being a really good book, I also want like the badge of it being a bestseller. Okay. It would be like the difference between aiming to be a good doctor versus aiming to get a first class degree. Got it. Okay. Is that in that? Yes. <laughs> there, there, there are different things. Yeah. Um, but. And and obviously being a, a good doctor is far more important than, than having a first class degree. But there is something interesting about the quote, competition for the first class degree as well. Okay, fair. It sounds like you kind of want both things. You want the badge and you want it to actually be good, not just... To oh yeah, I want it to actually be good. And it'd be nice if I had the badge. <laughs> like, okay, fair. Equally, like for example, the, you know, you know, the 10 million a year thing. Like, yeah, no one needs $10 million, obviously. Like, but it's just an interesting thing to work towards that makes me approach the things that I do in a slightly different way than I, than I did by default. Right. Yeah. And where the path to getting there is not entirely obvious and clear and stuff. Yeah. I think, I think having monetary goals gets a bad rap, a bad rep because like, you know, certainly in like, you know, in a business, money is like a decent proxy for the actual impact and value you're, you're creating. Yeah. 
Actually, all, all businesses should have monetary goals. And at least this is what 100% of the business books I'm reading say. Yeah. So I was going to ask you about this, about causal. To what extent do you have monetary goals? I think we don't have any particular monetary goals. And I think so So far we haven't especially had sort of monetary goals. And, and I think that this is maybe actually a bad thing. And like if we were aiming towards that, maybe we'd have made more progress or whatever. Um, I think at the moment we kind of feel like we haven't sort of figured anything out yet. And so... Mm. Having... Yeah, that's the impression I got every time we talk about this. It's like your vibe is very much that, oh, we're still in the discovery phase. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is like someone who's like listening to podcasts and stuff and being like, yeah, I'm still in the kind of trying to come up with an idea for a business phase. Okay, least, sure. Yeah, it's yeah, sort of, yeah. It sort of feels like that. It's not exactly like that, but it's, you know, you can see the similarity. Yeah, 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 for sure. I, I think our attitude has been like kind of, like, I, I think we should be out of the discovery phase at this point. I think like we've, we've, we've learned enough stuff. We have the conviction. We should really kind of be going for it. And I think we've kind of been, I don't know, maybe lazy is the wrong word, but kind of been telling ourselves that, oh, we're still like, we're still, we, you know, we're still trying to learn some things. We're still, we're still trying to sort of discover the market or whatever, rather than, you know, and that's why we don't care about like growing a certain percentage every month. And that's why we don't have like revenue goals, um, stuff like that. Um, so yeah, I, th I think we should get out of this, like, oh, we're still in the discovery phase mindset because no, no, no. I think, yeah, I think, I think the general advice is also like, your business and you should have revenue goals because i think when you're like again it, it like comes down to like trying to try if, if 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 you tell yourself oh we're in this sort of you know customer validation phase where we're still trying to like define mm -hmm. the problem and that kind of stuff like sure yeah you, you still have you you still need to do that like you never you never stop needing to do that but tell it i i think an apt analogy is how i think if you're learning martial arts and you want to punch a target you're not taught to aim for the target you're taught to aim through the target. You you intend to punch through the target. Yeah, you intend to punch a point, you know, a few inches behind the target. And it, and in aiming to go through the target, you hit the target, right? Mm. If you aim to hit the target, you will subconsciously like pull your punch a little bit and not punch as hard as you can because you know you just need to hit the target. If you're aiming to go all the way through the target, you're going to like really hit the target. Um, and so That's I think like. Yeah. I think that's like a good analogy for this. And I think like so far we've been a bit caught up in like, oh yeah, we just want to, right, we're aiming for the target kind of thing. <laughs> you know, we're not like really going for it and trying to punch through the target. And it feels a bit like trying to try rather so, than do it. So as we were talking about a lot of this stuff, it was kind of reminding me of a discussion I was having on the part-time YouTuber Academy with some of the students. Yeah. Um, it was that, you know, to what extent should you set goals for kind of being a YouTuber, right? Like what, uh, and it's like an important, an important thing to get up front because like on the one hand, there's the whole, on, on the one hand, you could take the approach of, hey, this is a bit of an experiment. I'm going to take things slow. I'm going to do it at my own pace. I'm going to start by making 10 unlisted videos and I'm going to film with my phone. And then over time, if I decide I enjoy it, then I'm going to upgrade to my camera and upgrade my editing and then maybe I'll consider going from iMovie to Final Cut. You, right, you yeah, know, yeah. That, stuff. that's kind of like one one approach to it. Yeah. Another approach to it, which sort of a lot fewer of our students have, is I really want to take this seriously and I want to grow as much as I possibly can in a year's time so that this makes at least six figures for my business. That is a very different approach than the, hey, I just want to do it at my own pace and see what happens. Yeah. And... Like, obviously, it's totally fine to have either of those. Like, I'm not trying to tell anyone about like what what goals they should set. But 
I think I think just having having clarity on that does make sense because like I wouldn't have wanted to set the goal of and I didn't have the goal of I want to grow as big as I can in the next two years. Yeah. I set a goal of hey, I'll just kind of see what happens and blah 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 and things happen yeah. to work out. Um which is fine. But had I set more of a goal, then it, it maybe <laughs> yeah, I would have done things a lot differently. And another kind of metaphor that I was using with these guys is like, you know, the, this is all like probabilistic. There is there there is never any kind of guarantee of success on YouTube, whatever success means to you. It's all it's all just a game of probability. But there are different things that you can do to stack the deck in your favor. Um, some of those involve investing time, and others of those involve investing money. Yeah. So let's say you want to invest time to stack the deck in your favor. Theoretically, if you were like an amazing video editor or learned amazing learned to become an amazing video editor, you could make like a Netflix documentary style video every single week. That would definitely be stacking the deck in your favor. It would just take you 100, 100 hours a week to do it, or 200 or 300 hours a week to do it. Yeah, because it's it's it that takes a lot of time. Um, the more videos you make, which takes again takes a lot of time, the higher your odds are of succeeding because any any one of those is more likely to go viral. The more time you invest in learning techniques about storytelling or actively improving your speaking ability or actively improving your camera presence or doing deliberate practice on these, yeah. all of these are investments of time which stack the deck in your favor. On the other side of the coin, you can invest money to stack the deck in your favor. You can buy a fancier camera and a fancier lens and get a light. You can hire a studio for the for like you know three days a month or or whatever. Like that would be spending money. You can hire a a video editor, a videographer, a, a team. You're spending money to stack the deck in your favor. And so what I've been saying to so saying to these guys is that you really have to have clarity on what you actually want because that dictates the extent to which yeah yeah to stack the deck. Because people were posting in the group being like, hey, so I've got the Panasonic GH5 and this is my video quality. Do I need to upgrade? And I would be think I'd be reading that thinking, ah. Oh, what does it mean to need to upgrade like you know like someone like david dobrik shoots fine on like an iphone or like a cheap ass camera yeah, yeah. he doesn't have, he doesn't need to buy a ten thousand dollar camera setup but it is probabilistic and if you can have like masterclass levels of production value then chances are again you're, you're stacking the deck more in your favor yeah and so i wonder i i've, I've been trying to figure out like a a, a a nice neat analogy for in 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 terms of how do you think about what goal you want for your youtube channel um and to think about that goal in a way that doesn't have the baggage associated with the emotional need to try to try rather than the emotional need to succeed. Yeah, yeah. Does that make sense? Um, but I think I'll, I'll use this. I think the, the, the martial arts analogy is nice and the sort of the concept of trying to try. Yeah. Also, what can I do versus what needs to be done? That was something that I really highlighted. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because, and I, I really love the way that, I don't know whoever it was on this Less Wrong article talks about, well, I've got this $1 left, left over from lunch. Yeah. <laughs> That's just so powerful. It's like, well, you know, I've got to do stuff and I have like 20 quid left over and I can't upgrade my camera gear with 20 quid. It's like, well, okay, okay. Yeah. fine. You know? <laughs> Whereas what needs to be done if you need to have a thousand pound camera, are you going to find a way to make that happen? Yeah. Oh, but that would involve taking in more shifts at work. Well, all right then. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, okay. Like, which of those do you actually want? Yeah. Do you want what can I do versus what needs to be done? Um, but then obviously the whole, in my, in my head is that the whole problematic, oh, but actually, you know, why do we need to, why, why not just be satisfied with what we have and blah, 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 blah. Who cares at the end of the day? Yeah. Is your intention um, to succeed or is your intention to try to succeed? Yeah, exactly. I, I just want to like read out one more thing, which I think goes, yeah. goes nicely in hand with all of this stuff, because, you know, with all the stuff we've talked about, you know, you can conclude that, okay, right. I'm going to like, I'm going to shoot for the stars. I'm going to punch through the target. You know, I'm going to be like relentless about this thing. I'm really going to go for it. And you can still mess up if you think about one thing the wrong way. And of course that, man, 
I just need to like read everything on less wrong. I, I remember when I was like, <laughs> yeah, when I was like 15, I came across it and I was, I, I think I, I, I wasn't sort of, <laughs> sort of me- mentally, mature, yeah, mentally <laughs> mature enough to actually be able to understand this stuff. And I like bookmark this thing and it's been on my to-do list of like, dude, just like read the whole of less wrong <laughs> about a decade now. Um, and yeah, I, I came, I came back to it today and I was just like, man, this is so good. Like they really have thought about all of this stuff. Already. <laughs> like we've wasted dozens of podcast episodes <laughs> that could just have been links to less wrong posts probably. Um, okay. Final less wrong post, which goes with, with the rest of what we talked about. The title is pain is not the unit of effort. All right. Now there's a few quotes at the start. Uh, there's the Kelly, Kelly, Kelly Clarkson quote, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. There's the exercise motto, no pain, no gain. There's the Chinese proverb, the more bitterness you swallow, the higher you'll go. All right. Now the article. I noticed recently that at least in my social bubble, pain is the unit of effort. In other words, how hard you're trying is explicitly measured by how much suffering you put yourself through. In this post, I will share some anecdotes of how damaging and pervasive this belief is and propose some counterbalancing ideas that might help rectify the problem. Um, Part one, anecdotes. One, as a child, I spent most of my evenings studying mathematics under under some amount of supervision from my mother. While studying, if I expressed discomfort or fatigue, my mother would bring me a snack or a drink and tell me to stretch or take a break. I think she took it as a sign that I was trying my best. If, on the other hand, I was smiling or joyful for extended periods of time, she took that as a sign that I had effort to spare and increased the hours I was supposed to study each day. To this day, there's a gremlin on my shoulder that whispers, if you're happy, you're not trying your best. Anecdote two, Mm. a close friend who played sports in school reports that training can be harrowing. He told me that players who who fell behind the pack during, uh, during daily jogs would be singled out and publicly humiliated. One time, the coach screamed at my friend for falling behind the asthmatic boy who was, already, who was alternating between running and using his inhaler. Another time, my friend internalized no pain, no gain to the point of losing his toenail, toenails. Three, in high school and college, I was surrounded by overachievers constantly making what seemed to me uh, to be incompre- incomprehensibly bad life choices. My classmates would sign up for eight classes per se- semester when the rec- recommended number is five. They jigsaw extracurricular activities into their calendar like a dynamic programming knapsack solver. Don't worry about what that is. And then proceed to have loud public complaining contests about which libraries are most comfortable to study in past 2 a.m. and how many pages they have left or right for the essay due in three hours. Only later did I learn to ask, what incentives were they responding to? Anecdote four. A while ago, I became a connoisseur of Chinese web novels. Among those written for a male audience, (laughs) there is a surprisingly diverse set of character traits represented among the main characters. Doubtless many are womanizing murder hobos with no redeeming qualities, but others are classical heroes with big hearts or sarcastic anti-heroes who actually grew up, grow up a little, or ambitious empire builders with grand plans to pave the universe with Confucian order, or down-on-their-luck starving artists who just want to bring happiness to the world through song. If there is a single common virtue shared by all these protagonists, it is their superhuman pain tolerance. Protagonists routinely and often voluntarily dunk themselves in vats of lava have all their bones broken, shattered, and reforged, get trapped inside alternate dimensions of freezing cold for millennia, um, and overdose on level-up pills right up to the brink of death, all in the name of becoming stronger. Oftentimes, the defining difference between the protagonist and the antagonist is that the antagonist did did not have enough pain tolerance and allowed the suffering in his life to drive him mad. Anecdote 5. I have a close friend who often asks for my perspective on personal problems. A pattern arose in a couple of our conversations. Uh, The guy... I feel like you're not actually trying. The guy saying to his friend, I feel like you're not actually trying. Uh, 
and then in brackets he says meaning using all the tools at your disposal getting creative throwing money at the problem to make you go away and then the friend replies what do you mean i'm not trying i think i'm trying my best can't you tell how hard i'm trying um and the meaning of that is like piling on time energy and willpower to the point of burnout he says after several of these conversations went nowhere i learned that asking this friend to try harder directly translated in his mind to accusing him of low pain tolerance and asking him to hurt himself more part two antidotes i often hear on the internet laments like why is nobody actually trying once upon a time i was honestly and genuinely confused about this question it seemed to me that actually trying, aiming the full force of your being at the solution of a problem you care about, is self-evidently motivating and requires zero extra justification if you care about the problem. Um, I've highlighted the next two paragraphs. They're really good. Uh, I think I finally understand why so few people are actually trying. The reason is this pervasive and damaging belief that pain is the unit of effort. With this belief, the injunction actually try means put yourself in as much pain as you can handle. Similarly, She's trying her best translates to she's really hurting right now. Even worse, people with, with this belief optimize for the appearance of suffering. Answering emails at midnight and appearing fatigued at meetings are somehow taken to be more credible signals of effort than actual results. And if you think that's pathological, wait until you meet someone for whom telling them about opportunities actively hurts them because you've just created another knife they feel pressured to cut themselves with. I see a mob of people walking up to houses and throwing themselves bodily at the, at, at the closed front doors. I walk up one block. Uh, I, I walk up to block one. I walk up to block one man. <laughs> man, that was hard to read. I walk up to block one man and ask, stop it. Why don't you just try the doorknob first? Have you rung the doorbell? The man responds in tears, nursing his bloody right shoulder. I'm trying as hard as I can. With his one good arm, he shoves me aside and takes a running start to lunge at the door again. Finally, the timber shatters and the man breaks through. The surrounding mob cheers him on. Look how hard he's trying. Once you understand that pain is how people define effort, the answer to the question why is nobody actually trying, becomes astoundingly obvious. I'd like to propose two beliefs to counterbalance this awful state of affairs. One, if it hurts, you're probably doing it wrong. If your wrists ache on the bench press, you're probably using bad form and or too much weight. If your feet ache from running, you might need sneakers with better arch support. If you're consistently sore for days after exercising, you should learn to stretch properly and check your nutrition. Such rules are well established in the setting of physical exercise, but their analogs and intellectual work seem to be completely lost on people. If reading a maths paper is actively unpleasant, you should find a better written paper or learn some background material first. Most likely both. If you study or work late into the night and it disrupts your sleep cycle, you're trading off long-term productivity and well-being for low-quality work. That's just bad form. If it hurts, you're probably doing it wrong. Uh, so that was number one. Number two, you're not trying your best if you're not happy. Happiness is really, really instrumentally useful. Being happy gives you more energy, increases your physical health and lifespan, makes you more creative and risk tolerant. And even if all the previous effects are unreplicated pseudoscience, it causes other people to like you more. Whether you're tackling the Riemann hypothesis, climate change, or your personal weight loss, one of the first steps should be to acquire as much happiness as you can get your hands on. And the good news is, at least anecdotally, it is possible to substantially raise your happiness set point through Jedi mind tricks. Becoming happy is a fully general problem-solving strategy. And although one can, in principle, trade off happiness for short bursts of productivity, in practice, this is never worth it. Culturally, we've been led to believe that overstressed and tired people are the ones trying their best. It is right and proper to be kind to such people, but let's not go so far as to support the delusion that they are inputting as much effort as their joyful, boisterous peers bouncing off the walls. You're not trying your best if you're not happy. Um, so that was that was the article. Pain is not the unit of effort. And so I think you know this this all like feeds into like stuff around like hustle culture and i think the whole like hustle culture um you know debate if you want to call it that mm. again it's just it's just a lot of like wordplay and 
Yeah, it's all like false like, dichotomies. <laughs> yeah, wordplay, false dichotomies. It's all just a bunch of like rhetoric and BS. Like it's all possible, you know. <laughs> Both things are possible, right? Uh, and I think I think this thing about pain not being the unit of effort. I, I really I really um, empathize with this thing about like when he was at university, you'd, you'd have all these people like in this in this weird like pissing contest of seeing who who complains the most about their like their essays and stuff like that. Um, I think there was like pain signaling, and again, I, th- I think the pain comes down to like wanting to feel like you're working or wanting to feel like you're trying, rather than like actually being oriented and aiming towards the the thing that you care about. This is a big part of, so when we had that conversation with Mac a few weeks ago about uh, should you post revenue numbers, one of the things Mac, well, one of Mac's arguments was that if you post revenue numbers, it gives people the impression that you didn't struggle to get where you are. And therefore, if you're going to post revenue numbers, you should signal to people about how much you struggled to get there. <laughs> like, obviously, this is a sort of facetious uh, interpretation of his argument, but that, 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 right. that was essentially his point. And I think anytime I... Uh, I try to avoid sort of pain signaling slash struggle porn slash like whatever you want to call it. Yeah. Because it just feels completely, it feels like those people at university and at school who were like, oh my God, like my life is so hard because I've, I had to go for rowing and then I had a lecture and then I went to the library and now I have this essay and now I'm so shattered at the end of the day and oh my God, but I've, got, I've just got to go out tonight and then oh, I'm going to be so wrecked tomorrow. It just feels like, like that. And so I have a real allergy to <laughs> anything associated with struggle signaling. Um, yeah. So when I was sort of planning out the script for this video where I talk about how much money I made in 2020, I was like, there was like a whole bit of it where I was like, well, you know, let me just remind you that I've actually worked hard for this and I actually had to spend hours and hours each night when I got home from work editing videos. And it just felt so inauthentic because like, actually all of that's fun. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't feel like work. And if it doesn't feel like work, yeah. then you're having a great time. And I don't want to create this false illusion that, oh my God, I've struggled so hard to get where I am. Like, I feel like for the most part, it's kind of been a breeze and I was born with a good hand and, you know, various levels of privilege. And it just so happens that the things I enjoy doing are the things that are somewhat economically useful as well. Like, yeah, that is the real quote reason for any kind of quote success that I might've had. Uh, So I don't know. I don't know how I, I don't know if it's enough of a... I think there's, I think what Mac was saying was not necessarily like, it has to have been painful. You have to like tell people that it was a painful process, but more about just like objectively not being misleading about what it takes. For example, there seems to be a myth that like people get to a million subscribers in a hundred videos or that, for example, people get to a thousand subscribers in less than 50 videos. You know, uh, the, the general view that people have is like, whoa, I did not expect it to take that long. And I think what Mac was saying is just like, people should just be a bit more transparent about the objective reality, Right. I don't think by you know sharing the struggle Mac necessarily meant like, oh, it has to have been a painful process for you and you have to tell people how painful it was. I yeah, think it was just no, more like ac- accurately point. like presenting what is about to unfold. Uh, th- this is what it took. It yeah. took this sort of, I'd get home from work and spend like three hours sitting in front of the computer editing, but hey, that was fun. Yeah. Um, it's all good. <laughs> if you want to put in that, that time editing, then by all means, go for it. It's fun. That kind of vibe. Yeah. So I think like struggle signaling, yeah, if it hurts you're doing it wrong, and you're not really trying your best if you're not happy. I think those are really good. Good stuff. Yeah, there's a lot to think about. Um, yeah, man. You should find links, links to all these things. We'll definitely put them in the show notes. And I I also need to... There's less wrong. There's uh, Scott... What's his face? Uh, Scott Alexander. Alexander. Yeah. yeah and, and James Summers. Just read everything James, James Summers. James Summers. Okay. <laughs> there's Harry Potter and the Methods of Rationality. That's another one that I need yeah, to have. Yeah. I've had on my list for over a decade. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. 
got it's gonna happen at some point it's i feel like if we, if we if we ever need a topic just pick anything on less wrong yeah, yeah yeah i was thinking like we can just we can mine the hell out of this for podcast content <laughs> fantastic yeah i feel like also we shouldn't do like three posts in a single thing because like even like even one of these and actually just trying to distill it and use examples and because if someone wants to read the post, they can just read the post. Whereas I think the value in discussing it on a podcast is that we can elaborate on it. And yeah, I guess so. Yeah. So maybe next time we pick one <laughs> and focus on the one and yeah. then actually actually try and understand it rather than sort of uh, like a lot of the VGR stuff. I went straight over my head. I was like, I need, I need right, to yeah. spend uh, sort of tw- tw- 20 minutes per tweet. You already do. Yeah. Okay. Good stuff. Let's call it. Let's call it the end of the episode. Anyway, that's like part of my existential crisis of trying to understand myself and, um, you know, what okay. I care about and why I'm doing things. Stay tuned for part two next week. <laughs> <laughs> All right, you're gonna read the thingy out. Uh, yeah, I'm just trying to pick one. Um, I'm gonna use the outro once you've once you've read the quote or once you've read the review. Nice. All right, here's a funny one. Uh, it's entitled episode 83 so that was the most recent episode uh, this is Drew from Melbourne <laughs> I'm reading this out because it's kind of funny because he's kind of shitting on you <laughs> so apologies in advance. I mean look if there was if someone was shitting on me I'd definitely read that out okay. uh, he says this episode of Ali trying to make the audience like him more <laughs> didn't really work because he tried to make his bros seem like a bad person <laughs> however, however I do like Ali he is more realistic but not as self-aware at least in the moment and Tamor is a mellow and chill which is more relatable the balance between chill and critical is good. Good podcast talk. Uh, good podcast talk more about you guys' journey and experiences in school. Uh, five star review, nonetheless. So, oh, that's fine. <laughs> yeah, it's all good. Anyway, that brings us to the end of this episode. Thank you, everyone. Hmm. that's it for this week thank you oh, for listening you if you like this episode please leave us a review on apple podcasts or on the apple podcast website if you're not using an iphone there's a link in the show notes if you've got any thoughts on this episode or any ideas for new podcast topics we'd love to get an audio message from you with your conundrum question or just anything that we could discuss yeah if you're up for having your voice played on the podcast and your question being the springboard for our discussion email us an audio file mp3 or voice note to hi at notoverthinking.com. if you've got thoughts but you'd rather not have your voice played publicly that's fine as well tweet or dm us at n overthinking on twitter please thanks again for listening and we'll see you next time that's pretty good